Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, I'm Das Smith and welcome to The Signal Line. Today's podcast is a remote viewing discussion on March 5th, 2021. This is with Gail Husick and Alexis Champion about their respective remote viewing businesses and working with clients. Gail Husick is a Harvard-educated lawyer, a licensed private investigator and founder of the Husick Group LLC. At the Husick Group, she leads a team of more than 20 professional remote viewers in delivering to clients information that may be difficult or impossible to, to obtain from other sources. Alexis Champion has a PhD in computer science specializing in artificial intelligence. For a dozen years, he was a researcher and then director of computer projects in public and private laboratories, as well as in service companies. Alexis is also the founder and director of Iris Intuition, a company dedicated to the use, training and scientific research on intuition, more specifically remote viewing. Sit back and enjoy the show. Take care. Who should we start? Who would like to start first? I guess it should be ladies first, shouldn't it? We'll, we'll go with Gail first, if that's okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Des, for organizing this. These are fantastic, um, and it's neat to get the community together this way. Um, and I'm also really looking forward to Alexi's presentation. So I think this is going to be a good, a good chat. Um, okay, I'm going to share my screen if I can figure out how to do this. All right, can you guys see that? Yep. Okay, great. Um, so Daz asked if I would put together a short presentation to give a little bit of information about my background and uh, an introduction to the work we do with the Husey Group. Um, and I have some examples to show you towards the end. So there's a fair amount of material to get through. So I think it's better if we can hold questions until after. Um, and then also, so Alexi has a chance to do his as well before we get into the Q&A part. Um, so I am a remote viewer. I'm trained in controlled remote viewing, CRV. Um, I have done most of my training with Lynn Buchanan. Uh, I took basic actually with Lori Williams and that was a, a really great experience. And then I did most of the rest of my training with Lynn. Um, when we get to the Q&A part, I'm happy to talk if you guys want about why I think it's important for an operational project manager to themselves be trained as a remote viewer. And I can also talk about why I think it's probably a bad idea to try and view and manage on the same project. Um, and before we get any further in this, I, I really want to acknowledge, um, you know, any anything good that we're accomplishing at the Husick Group is possible because we're building on the foundation of the generation that came before us. And I, I want to acknowledge, especially the Stargate viewers, the military viewers, um, there's been so much encouragement from them uh, to me and to the other viewers on the team and the community in general. And, um, you know, just in terms of, of training 
and giving advice, taking phone calls, answering questions, helping with analysis, uh, giving tips on how to deal with the media, sending us clients, sending us viewers. Um, I really just can't thank them enough. So um, it's always dangerous to try and list people, but I will anyway. Um, Lynn is obviously at the top of that list for me as, as my trainer, but we have also received so much support and encouragement from uh, Paul Smith, Tom McNear, Bill Ray, uh, Skip Atwater, uh, Joe McMonagall, um, uh, Mel Riley, um, who am I leaving out here? Um, uh, Angela Ford uh, recently. Um, just, you know, all those folks have been super supportive and, um, and also, although he's not with, uh, with Stargate, uh, I also want to mention Glenn Wheaton over at HRVG. Um, so if you don't like what we're doing, don't blame those guys. Uh, but if you do like what we're doing, um, I really do have to say, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And I hope that our generation is able to pay forward all the encouragement that we've had from, from those folks. So my background, just briefly, uh, I have a degree in economics from Rice University. Uh, I have a law degree from Harvard. And those occasionally come in handy in the work that I do now, depending on who the client is and what the project is about. Um, Saybrook is especially interesting. Um, that uh, Saybrook is a, a graduate psychology school. And um, that one... Uh, came about at a time in my life that was really pivotal, pivotal for finding my way to remote viewing. Um, I guess about 15 years ago now, I started having precognitive dreams. Um, they were vivid, they were detailed, and uh, usually had feedback within a day or two. And I had no idea what was going on. Um, there was nothing in my background that had prepared me for that. Certainly nothing you get in an economics program or a law school program that would answer those kinds of questions. And so that sent me on a search for, you know, to learn about consciousness and dreams and, and you know, whatever this thing was. I didn't even have the vocabulary to ask the right questions. Um, and it took me quite a while. Uh, did a lot of reading, a lot of research, sorted through a lot of garbage. Um, and then one day I came across a book um, called Dream Telepathy, uh, this book here. And it's not about remote viewing, but it's about uh, dream telepathy experiments. And that was life-changing for me to realize that you could study the paranormal scientifically, that you didn't have to be weird, you didn't have to join a cult. You, you know, this was a little bit back in my comfort zone. And uh, the book is about some studies they had done at the Maimonides Sleep Lab in New York back in the 1970s. Um, you know, very well documented, all scientific. And one of the authors uh, was Stanley Krippner. And so I looked him up and saw that he was teaching at Saybrook. So I went there and enrolled and did a year of graduate psychology study there uh, with a particular focus on dream studies. And in the course of doing the work there, uh, I came across something in the readings uh, about remote viewing. I'd never heard of remote viewing before. And when I saw that and started reading about what that was, you know, the light bulb went on. And I was like, oh, you, you can pick the target. You can do it when you're awake. You can, you can have some control over how you explore. I mean, I, I have to learn how to do this. And then that's what sent me uh, to look for training 
in remote viewing, which then led me to Lori and to Lynn. Um, and then uh, this last thing here, uh, the, the purple square, that's the University of Washington. And that's where uh, I did their one-year program in uh, private investigation to prepare for uh, getting a PI license. My professional background, um, I practiced law at what was then the largest law firm in Silicon Valley. Um, we had about 600 lawyers there and I was on the management committee and for a few years I was the hiring partner. Um, most of my clients were technology companies and I helped them with their financings. So I did things like venture capital, public offerings, mergers and acquisitions. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't have imagined at the time, but it turns out that a lot of those skills are very useful in the work I'm doing now at the Husey Group. Um, it gave me a lot of experience in working with clients and scoping out projects and, and counseling clients, um, and also a lot of um, experience with building a team and leading a team of professionals on a complex project. So um, it turned out, I know they may sound initially very different things, but it actually uh, helps a lot with the work that I'm doing now. So uh, the Husey Group. Um, the first project that I did uh, where I pulled together a team of viewers uh, to do work for a client was back in 2011. And that was the Tim O'Brien project. Uh, some of you may have seen the presentation that I did for Irva a few years ago on that. Tim was, uh, had been given up for adoption as an infant and was looking for his birth mother. And so we worked on that project. Um, then um, we started getting more requests for you know, all different types of, of projects. And um, in 2014, I set up uh, the company as a formal legal entity, uh, as a limited liability company. And then in 2016, uh, we got the, the license as a private investigative agency. And that PI license comes in handy. The, it makes law enforcement much more comfortable, I think, working with us. It really changed the, the tone of the conversation we have with law enforcement now when we're working on things like missing person cases. Um, at, at, the team, at, at the HUSIC group, we have a network of about two dozen trained remote viewers. Um, they're all CRVers. And when we get to the chat part, I'm happy to explain uh, why that is. Um, in terms of who the viewers are, um, it's, it's a real mix. We've got um, some Stargate members and I'm always really happy when I can get their time to work on, on a project. Um, many of our viewers were trained by Stargate members. Uh, many of our viewers are themselves trainers. Um, some of them are names you would recognize instantly from Irva presentations or Facebook conversations or whatnot. Um, Others are people you've probably never heard of and probably never will hear of. Um, they're very private, but they're very good viewers. Um, so it's a real mix. Um, and the way we typically do things, uh, when a client comes in with a question, so that's the client is the little guy at the bottom of the slide there. The client comes in with a question and the client interfaces only with me. And that keeps the viewers free of pollution. Um, they don't, the viewers don't learn anything about who the client is, what, what their issue is, anything. Um, that allows me to work with the client, get the information I need to find out what they need. Um, 
also allows me to do the due diligence to make sure it's a project we ought to be doing. Um, and then if I decide that we're going to do that project, then I'll go out and I'll pull together a team from our network of the viewers that would be appropriate for that particular project. Um, different viewers have different strengths. Some viewers are really great at location targets. Some are really good at people or events or objects or whatever. Um, and sometimes a client will have a very complex project where we need, you know, there's several different pieces and I may split the team into different subgroups uh, to work on those. Um, but generally the viewers work blind. Um, they don't know who else has been staffed on the same project. They don't interact with each other at all. We try and keep everything squeaky clean. Um, and that's that's pretty much how, how we work. Um, and then I get the information back from them and provide that to the client. Um, and I just, I, I, uh, I just consider myself very lucky to get to work with these people. Um, these are some incredible people who've spent years or decades in some cases building these skills. And just time and time again, they answer the call to help and, and work on these projects. So it's a pretty special group. Um, in terms of clients, uh, we have all different kinds of clients. Um, probably the most common type of thing we get asked to work on uh, is missing person cases and missing object cases. So we do uh, interact with law enforcement quite a bit. Um, but we do lots of other things as well. Uh, technology development projects. Um, we've done work for an investigative journalist uh, to help with some background research before the journalist went out to do interviews. Um, we've used remote viewing to attempt to authenticate antiques. Um, I mean, there's just an infinite number of things you can, can do. Um, I should probably mention what we don't do. Um, uh, we typically don't do esoteric targets at the Hussett group. Um, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those. It's just, I like to focus at our group on things that are likely to have feedback, um, you know, very practical, real world kind of things. Um, we don't typically do stock picking, crypto, that kind of thing. There are plenty of people out there doing really good work in that space and that's not something that we do. Um, and we typically don't do medical projects. But aside from that, um, we are in the information business. And I think that's worth emphasizing because sometimes when I talk to people about what we do, they're so dazzled by the magic uh, of it. And um, sometimes the expectations about what they're gonna get uh, may be a little bit skewed. And so I always like to make sure they understand that as cool as this stuff is, you know, what you're gonna get from us at the end is a written report with information. And so if that's what you need, if that's what's gonna solve your problem, then absolutely remote viewing is a great tool. But sometimes people have expectations that, you know, I don't know, that remote viewers can make them happy or fix their relationships or fix their financial problems. Or So I always like to make sure people understand, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're gonna define a target based on a piece of information that you need. And then that's what you're gonna get from us. Um, and I also like this graphic uh, because it illustrates yeah, it, remote viewing is not 100% accurate. Um, and in this graphic, you'll see all the letters are there to make the word info, but they're not quite all in the right place yet. And there's some extra stuff there with that pink letter. Um, and that's a lot like doing analysis uh, when, you know, when I get the sessions in from all the viewers, 
you know, the patterns start to come out, you can kind of see things starting to take shape, but you, you, you have to recognize there's going to be some stuff in there that's probably not right. Um, and so there's, there's a, uh, you need to be cautious. Um, and I'm always very straight with, with clients that uh, it's not going to be 100% accurate. That said, uh, hopefully the information we provide and the clues we provide will help them solve their problem. Um, okay, I'm going to show you some examples just so you can kind of see what, what it looks like. Um, this is one from a stolen painting case that we worked on. And uh, I go into that in more detail. Uh, there's a video that I made uh, called Engaging the Client for Success. And you can find a link for that on our Facebook page if you want. Um, but the, the sketch in the upper left was, came in in a session from one of the viewers uh, who was trying to track the, what had happened to this missing painting. And the photo in the lower right was given to us as a feedback photo later from the client um, this was the gallery that he had intended to send it to, and the work from this viewer and some other viewers seemed to confirm that the painting did make it that far, uh, but got pulled aside and hidden and then transported somewhere else later. Um, but anyway, I thought it was, you know, you can see, you know, there's some really good detail there in terms of the, the architectural details and the color. Um, sometimes we can give a client an address um, of, of where to go search. Other times we just narrow down the search area. Um, this is just an example from a, a project report where we were able to narrow down to, to this triangular area. Um, this is from another case, a missing passport. Uh, the sketch in the upper left was from the viewer's session and the photo uh, is the feedback from the client showing us if he did find the passport and this is indeed where it was. And this is from that same case. Uh, the passport was on the guy's own desk, but he had, wasn't able to see it because it was underneath his uh, sunglasses case. And then you see the sketches from the viewer over here, a nice match to that. Um, I really like technology projects and I can't show you a lot uh, of client work because of confidentiality, but this is one that I can talk about. This is the Google Barge project that we did several years ago. And if you're not familiar, um, several years ago, there was this big barge in San Francisco Bay and it had privacy fencing around it so people couldn't get up close and see what was going on. Um, there was a lot of curiosity. There were a lot of articles starting to show up in the, in the news, uh, people speculating what this might be. Um, and so we wanted to figure out you know, who does this belong to? What is it? What's going on inside? There was obviously some kind of construction project. Um, so I tasked the viewers with this. Um, they were blind tasked. They were, the only thing they knew is that the target was something man-made. That was it. Um, and you can see the sketches that came back in the initial sessions. Um, you know, good, good uh, representation of the barge. Uh, several of them noted that it was on water which confused the heck out of them. Uh, so many of them were saying, oh, this is like, it's like a giant building, but it's floating on water and that can't be right. Um, and of course I couldn't, I couldn't give them any information because we needed to do retasking. So, you know, my answer there was just stick with your structure, send me what you got, we'll keep going. Um, on a retasking, I asked them then to move inside you know, the people who had found something structural, I said, move inside the structure and describe what you find there. 
um, and describe the purpose. And we got sketches like this. And um, by the end of the project, I had pieced together that this was probably something to do with Google's project Loon. Um, for those of you who don't know, Google, had, Google X had a project going for quite a while where the plan was to put these giant balloons up in the air uh, to bring internet connectivity to parts of the world that didn't have it. Um, and so it looked like this barge was part of that system and might be a, a launch, a place where they were going to launch these. Um, and you can see from the, the sketches here, it does seem to match the photos of the Loon balloon. Um, also, I'm going to go back here. You'll notice that the identifier on this is BAL0010. So, um, and then, you know, later the, the press did confirm that this belonged to Google and uh, this is Project Loon. The level of detail you can get uh, is really good. Um, the sketch on the top was turned in by one of the viewers on the project where he drew a cutaway of one of these containers and reported that there was something circular and rotational inside that was propulsion related. Um, and then this figure at the bottom is a sketch that is, was actually in Google's patent application for the power generation system for Project Loon. So that's a pretty good match. Uh, here's another one. Several viewers on this project described a hinged element, uh, you know, something that opened, you know, hinged, and then something came up out of it and expanded. And this was something that viewer after viewer after viewer described. Uh, and one of the viewers also described something about being solar powered. Um, the sketch at the bottom of the page is an illustration that I found in another Google Project Loon patent application. Um, and this is the balloon deployment system, which is solar powered and the container lid lifts and the balloon comes out and expands. Um, actually, before we get to that. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's an example of, of the kind of information that you can get from viewers on a technology project. Um, we, we actually got quite a bit more on that one. The, the final report was probably close to 100 pages and there was a lot of detail. Um, and over the years since we did that, a lot of information has come out from Google and in the trade press that, that was great feedback on a lot of the work the viewers did here. Um, another thing that we do at the HUSIC group is in-house training with the viewers who are in the network. Um, and we do what we call operational skill building targets, OSB. Um, and the idea behind that is when you go through training, you typically practice on targets like a location or a person or an event or an object. And that's great training. But when you get to operations, the client isn't so much interested in how well you can describe the stuff they already know. Um, they're coming to you because they have a question that they don't know the answer to. And so they need you to, I mean, yes, you know, describe the parts they do know because that's how they know you're on target. Um, but then they need you to go beyond that and find the unknown. And there's a spe you know, specific thing that they need uh, to solve their problem. And so the operational skill building targets are designed to simulate more that kind of a client situation where you're not just describing something, but you're actually trying to hone in on a particular aspect of it. Um, so this uh, actually is our most recent 
OSB target. This is the Cuisinart food processor. And um, a few years ago, that uh, they had a huge product recall because those metal blades in the food processor were cracking and chipping and pieces of the metal were falling off into the food, which is bad. Um, and people were, they had several dozen reports of people with mouth lacerations and tooth damage. And I mean, it was, it was not a good thing. Um, so I tasked this to the viewers. Um, the only thing they knew is that the target, you know, they knew this was a simulation of something that would be like a client project. They knew that the target was something man-made and they knew that it had an issue or a problem. That's, that's it. That's all they knew. Um, they did a great job. So we got sketches that indicated that they're pretty clearly on target. Um, but they did, they honed right in on that rotating blade mechanism. And you can see there sketches from six different viewers, you know, it didn't take long to, you know, <laughs> see that they were, they were on the problem aspect of this. Um, there's some more. And then when they were retasked to describe specifically the problem, they nailed it. Um, you know, they, they noted again, the problem has to do with this circular element. It has something to do with something chipped, a ragged texture, not smooth, flawed, broken. Um, you know, the hole is breaking up in a way that's not intended. Um, encapsulating the problem, something got loose or broke off. It's found to be weak and broke. So they did a great job with that. And, um, you know, I think when you see something like this, you realize that if companies incorporated remote viewing into their design and manufacturing process, they could save millions of dollars. This product recall for the Cuisinart food processor uh, applied to more than 8 million units. Uh, in addition to that, there was a class action lawsuit. So I'm sure, I don't know what the final number was, but I'm sure it ran into the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions uh, that cost them because of this defect. And, you know, a few thousand dollars on a remote viewing project would have identified that. So um, there are, you know, tremendous practical applications for remote viewing. And my vision for the HUSIC group and for the field is that it will become more mainstream and people will realize, you know, this is a really valuable source of information that can prevent problems, uh, fix problems, and it can be used very economically and it's really worth it. Um, one cool thing that happened on this project uh, that I want to share with you, um, not every project, but many projects, sometimes there will be some kind of synchronicity that happens during the course of the project. Um, out in the real world that just ties in with the project. And uh, I don't have an explanation for it, but I've just observed it happen uh, on many projects. Um, on this one, when I sent the feedback to one of the viewers, he very quickly got back to me and said, while he had been working on his session, uh, in his regular job, uh, he works in a construction field. And he said that this uh, bar, this crane hoisting fork bar, sheared off, the metal just failed. Um, and he actually got a call from the job site interrupting his remote viewing session to tell him 
that this metal uh, had had sheared off and broken. Um, so again, I have no explanation for this other than just it's uh, it happens maybe more often than you might think. Um, so that's it. I want to end with a picture of a goat. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the men who stare at goats. And uh, I think in, in their case, they were trying to use their mental abilities to kill the goat. Um, I'm not usually trying to kill anyone. Um, the reason I like this picture is um, the, the, the job that I do um, with project management has kind of a shepherding function to it. And I really like that. Um, you know, I take that seriously. My, my role is to create an environment where the viewers can do their best work. And um, I just, I really enjoy that. I, I have a great job. Um, if you want more information about our work after tonight, um, there's several places you can go to get that. Uh, you can email me uh, at info at hughesseatgroup.com. You can check out our website. Um, uh, at the IRVA website, there will be a couple of conference videos of presentations uh, that I've given uh, the one on Tim O'Brien, who was looking for his birth mother. And there's another one there, I think, on um, the autism project that we did a few years ago. Uh, there's a couple of articles I have in Daz's Eight Martinis, and we have a Facebook page. So there's, there's lots of ways you can find us and get more information about our work. Thanks. Thanks for that, Gail. Do you want to take some questions now, or should we wait until after Alexis is in her presentation? Um, I think we should probably have Alexi go because then people can, you know, depending on questions, maybe both of us can, yeah, both or either good. can answer. Well, let, let me toss in real quick. Not, not my gig, but I have an opinion as always. Um, it may be they'll forget some of the things I want to ask you, Gail. Uh, the other side of it, of course, is Alexi is seven hours behind everybody, so, or ahead of everybody, so it kind of depends on how tired he is too. So, so that's a trade-off. Uh, do we risk forgetting what we wanted to ask you and let Alexi go, or do we get him while he's fresher? And then, you know, so anyway, I, I don't, I, I won't weigh in other than to pose that question. I'm here all night. Yeah, it's your call. <laughs> Alexi, if you want to go yeah, for it. Yeah. You... Uh, <laughs> thanks, Paul. <laughs> Alexi's an hour later than I am, so I, I yeah. understand that it's getting a bit yeah, late. Yeah, yeah. And um, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do my stuff <laughs> if you want, if that's yeah. okay with you. That sounds good. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and sure, uh, I will stay for Q and A's. <laughs> uh, okay, how do I do this? Uh, so I have to share my screen, right? Yeah, there should be a green button at the bottom of your screen usually. Yeah, okay. Uh, first, I'm... Okay. I don't have slides about myself, so I only have about uh, the company and the project. So I'm going to introduce myself a little bit. Um, um, I'm French and I live in the Paris area and uh, Iris, um, my company is in Paris. Um, I have a background I'm, um, in computer science. I have a PhD in artificial intelligence. 
So I used to work in several uh, labs, private and public labs. Um, I used to work uh, for 10 years also uh, for um, IT companies. Um, I used to manage um, software projects for corporations and for um, the French state. Um, and um, from 2001 to 2008, um, I used to work for um, a National Institute in Paris, uh, which deals with um, research on consciousness and, you know, um, parapsychology. And I, I, I was the director of this uh, institute, it's a lab, in 2008, 2009. And I, I created IRIS in 2009. So we are now, I guess, 12 years old. <laughs> and um, about IRIS, uh, we are 12 people now, and it's uh, like seven or seven and a half people working full time. So we're getting a little bit bigger step by step. <laughs> Two more people last year. Um, we have uh, we are all French people, but uh, one guy is Russian now. And we live in, not in Paris, a few of us are in Paris, but some of us are in Berlin, Germany. Some of us are in Vietnam. Some of us are in Belgium, Brussels. So we, uh, we work, um, we travel a lot. <laughs> That's what I want to say. <laughs> but mainly, but we have an office in Paris. Uh, I guess that's enough about myself. So put, 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 let's go. Okay. So can you see my PowerPoint? Yes. Okay. Thanks, guys. Um, I have a lot of slides, so I'm going to pass through. I'm going to, oh, some of them I'm going to, I'm not going to talk about all these. So that's normal if you don't see any, if some of them, you, you cannot see them. <laughs> um, Iris, we have three, um, is that correct, branches, say that? Um, okay. And first, um, we started as a operational remote viewing company, and we, are, we still are, obviously. And um, in 2009, as I said, um, and in one year later, we started to train people, uh, the, the general public, and uh, we also train people in, in companies and uh, in universities, uh, well, wherever we can. <laughs> um, and uh, one year and a half ago, in June 2009, we started um, to have a, a research, scientific research activity. So we have our uh, our own lab now. For the lab, we have two working people full time now. 
Um, okay. Up. So far, we've done like 90 plus, uh, 120 plus projects, operational projects and interventions for companies uh, for about 90 different clients. Uh, we work for, we've worked for banks, industries, museums, energy companies, uh, transportation companies, police, uh, traders, think tanks, universities, artists. Um, I'm going to give you some examples, of course, after this um, wider presentation about IRIS. Uh, each year, well, not in 2020, obviously, but each year we give, we have a little bit more than 100 uh, courses and conferences for the general public and companies. So it's like a small machine, as we say. Um, also, since 2017, we have uh, courses and conferences online. And Talking about CRV, uh, we just we we just uh, put online the intermediate course uh, earlier this year and the basic course last year, and it's doing it's doing well. Uh, actually, these days we sell one course uh, a day, and stay and we will have the. Um, advanced course online uh, in June. When I, when I say online, it's, it's like a um, blended course, okay? We, we, we have videos, but each student, uh, we spend several hours with each student uh, on, um, on Zoom or whatever. You know. uh, very important to us, uh for the job we do for companies and the general public as well uh, our courses receive official agreement from the french state that means that people can get their courses paid by their companies and we have a lot of people doing this so they don't pay with their own money also that's a that was a really that was really important for us. Um, in May 2020, we had the agreement, specific agreement. It's another one that uh, which makes uh, our courses no longer subject to VAT. So there's no taxes on our course courses. Uh, about the lab, um, we we. We've, we have always done research or R&D since the beginning in archaeology, psychology, software development. Also, we co-created and we co-finance the Workerly Prize with Irva. And I, I did like a, it stopped uh, because uh, the license at the Sorbonne stopped, this specific license had to stop, unfortunately, but I did teach for the Sorbonne, Sorbonne license. That's uh, three years after uh, high school. Um, 
creativity using remote viewing. So I used to teach remote viewing in uh, at the Sorbonne. Um, for the Sorbonne. Um, and as I said, in 2019, we started a lab. Uh, so far, our investments have been uh, 4,000 euros. And in two or three months from now, you will see some stuff going out uh, from our lab. Well, let's spell it up. So I'm going to do now a quick overview of some projects. Um, archaeology, that's, oh yeah, uh, Gail said, uh, talk, a little, talk a little bit about where she has, where she was trained or with who. Um, I started working with uh, Stephen Schwartz in 2007. That's where, that's when I was starting to um, manage operational projects. And um, about CRV, uh, I, I, I trained with Mr. Paul H. Smith. Um, and also with Lynn Buchanan. I did the basic course with Lynn and I think almost all the courses Paul has. <laughs> Um, okay, so I learned how to uh, manage a remote viewing project um, with um, Stephen, as I said, and I also I read um, and I still read everything I can <laughs> uh, read on the subject every day I read. Um, so this is, we started with an archaeological project in 2008. I think our first client was even before I started. Um, it was a project for uh, the Man Museum in Paris. So that was really something because we actually did several sessions in the museum in Paris. That was, uh, no, this was, that was our second project. Our first project was also an archaeological project. So we started almost like Stephen did. Um, so this is an example of an archaeological project. This one was done uh, for another museum and for um, archaeologists, uh, submarine archaeologists. Uh, like I think it was like five years ago now, and we call it the little jug project because it was about this little jug you can see right now. Um, I'm gonna let you read because uh, it's gonna be faster for you, I guess. <laughs> um, on this one, we it was a big project. We has we had eleven remote viewers and two on site. So um, we did a part, a big part of the project in our office and two of the viewers and myself, we, we went on site for more sessions. The tasking was describe the life story 
the life of the object the archaeologists have chosen for this project. Of course, we work blind, as Gail said. Uh, I'm the only one to know something about the target. And sometimes I know nothing. <laughs> so I, know, I only know the client. So we work blind, sometimes double blind. Um, and for the archaeologist, it was to analyze the intuitive data to validate or invalidate and push forward <coughs> a new hypothesis. Uh, I'm going to go through this. Um, the project went very well. And at the end of the project, the museum asked us um, to, to design and develop and create uh, a movie. Um, and this movie is running 24 seven in the museum right now. So it's been five years now. And this movie is about what, we've, what we did uh, with remote viewing and uh, the hypothesis, what they could um, uh, confirm, archaeologically speaking. So it's very interesting for us because in, the, in this museum, uh, people can see the, the actual object and also they can see how data was uh, collected using remote viewing about the subject. There are some of uh, screenshots of this movie. So it's, uh, it's partly animated and, and partly uh, shot in the museum or in the ocean because the object was found um, on the bottom of the sea. Another part of this project later on, and it, it's still in progress, um, we had to dive to locate um, artifacts. And actually, we found an artifact. I'm going to go through this. Um, yes, this is something I want to talk about. Um, in this diving dive project, um, we we had eleven viewers, as I said, and um, also we managed to have the general public work for us. Also, one work on this target uh, to help us locate things. And the general public research shows a consensus zone which is the main zone pinpointed by the team. And that's where we found something. So we had 100 people uh, via our website help us locate. And the viewers and these people uh, did uh, pinpoint the same, the same area. Well, OK. I'm sorry if I'm slow. <laughs> it's it's quite late for me. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Um, this one is another project. Uh, this one is innovation. 75% of what we do is for 
corporations or smaller companies and they ask us about innovation. It's an uh, innovation project. This project was on an oil level detector on tankers. And the customer was a Swiss high-tech company specialized in measurement apparatus. And we had three remote viewers on this one. 90% of the projects we do, we have three remote viewers. One session each. Sometimes we retask, but it's, it's not often. Uh, yeah, I have to say that uh, most of our viewers work, uh, they are all trained, high-level CRV trained uh, CR viewers. Um, they all teach CRV, uh, but some of them, while doing operational remote viewing sessions, they start using, they start by using CRV and then they quickly move to four and a half and then five and a half, six and a half. It's like, it's like working um, as that's called freeform remote viewing, but it's not freeform. It's, uh, it's CRV and uh, very, um, and after, after the first uh, stages, uh, the viewers can go very fast. So it's, it's more four and a half. Um, on this one, we had to describe the mobile apparatus or equipment developed and marketed by the company and representing its most important benefits over the period 2015, 2025. So this project was done in 2013, I guess. Also, we had to describe the range of application of this apparatus equipment, including the working environment for this device, the type of work done using it and the physical quantity which the apparatus measures. This company uh, has a, a research lab and create and sell uh, this, this device which measure the quantity and the quality of oil in the tankers. And what we did was, was describing uh, the next generation of their device. This, you can see an example here. You can see some sketches. And here are DAS sketches. Uh, when I say, when we work with th three viewers, they are all the same three viewers for each project, but, but sometimes we need more viewers and then we ask uh, some friends to join. Um, well, I'm gonna send you the, the PowerPoint file. So you can, you'll be able to read all this if, if you want to. Um, and this one was a real-time group innovation project uh, we call it the watch project. In this one, it was the first time we've done several of them uh, through the years, but this one, I like to talk about it because the, it was the first project of its kind. It was for a major bank, French bank, Société Générale. 
And what they asked us uh, was to, uh, to, to do a workshop with eight people from uh, this company. And um, what I did is to facilitate, to guide or to monitor, as we say in remote viewing, these eight people to describe the target. And the target was, um, was a watch, specific watch, a connected watch. So the, the, the tasking for these people was to design a connected watch, which will be used for doing micropayments, and that the company is going to build a prototype by the end of the year 2015. Of course, it was blind, okay? And I like this project a lot because it was funny. Here you can see, uh, the, we used Play-Doh, and you can see on the picture that they had the watch. And at the end of the day, it, uh, this project lasted a, a day. Well, it's, it's like six hours. And um, so I monitored these guys through stage one, two, three, and a little bit stage four, and um, a little bit of stage six. And uh, so you have, at the end of the day, the sketches of the watch, the design, and you have uh, some Play-Doh stuff. <laughs> this is another project. Uh, it's about art. And on this one, um, Ingo Swan was part of it. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. Um, this one was a partnership between an art gallery, the National School of Art in France, in the city of Bourges, um, and we worked with four artists. I'm gonna through the. I'm gonna go through this. You read this. Um, in fact, the someone in the um, in the mayor's office of these of of the Bourg city where the National School of Art is, uh, chose a target, it was a place, and uh, the artist had to be trained to CRV and had to describe the target and then use their data to create their pieces of art. And, and the art, uh, along with what Ingo did, was, um, was uh, shown to the public in a in a exhibition that was like 10 years ago or 11 years ago that's that's old um, sometimes we work uh, for um, the police um, maybe it's we don't do this a lot um, We've done maybe seven or eight projects, maybe one a year, something like that. And this one was for the high, for was for a high court um, and the criminal police. The tasking was collect information on the victim or victims of the investigated case, as well as any other related information that might move the investigation forward. So this is the expertise order. Well, um, 
the one of the results was that a witness was identified as being, in fact, a victim. And this prevented the case from being closed and the investigation moved forward. Uh, this is something quite new. Like this was in 2020. Uh, we did a project for the, a company in the, in the clothing industry. And we, we had to describe a garment uh, and, and a store. The company, the customer was uh, with a breeding for wool and a designer and manufacturer and seller of clothes. We only had two viewers on this one because we had to do it very quickly. It was in the summer. Um, and we had, we described the typical client for the brand at the end of October, 2020. We had to describe the purchasing environment. So it was the store and describe the most purchased item and why it was purchased. And, and you, you can see here the actual garment, the, 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 uh, the piece of clothes. And these are these, here are some uh, sketches. The viewers, uh, the viewers also describe the, the exact materials, silk and, and, and cashmere. Last year, and it's still in progress, uh, it's almost done. We worked for uh, the food industry. That's what we call the apples project. Well, and we had to describe the physical characteristics of the object, which is going to be used to package and help consume the apples. Describe the research and development condition and describe how the, the object, the package, is used by the consumers. In fact, uh, this company wants to create a package for the apples and by using, and, and also the package is a tool uh, transforming the apples, uh, for example, in, um, let me say that, it's not jam, but it's, uh, something we don't know yet exactly, but like a juice or something. And um, so, so the customer can eat the apple that way. I'm not sure that, I'm sorry if it's, if it's, if I cannot explain very well this stuff. <laughs> and last slide, uh, these are uh, project different, pro more and more we work with artists. Uh, artists. And um, I've been working for uh, people in the ma manga industry uh, in Japan and in France and Monaco. And um, you can see this picture it's here. It's uh, the Blitz manga, it's a manga series. Um, and uh, there, I, I how am I going to say this? <laughs> I work for this, for this, for with the scenarist uh, of this series, and um, 
In the manga, they talk a lot about intuition. And um, so I work to help this guy and these people uh, better explain uh, how all this work and uh, how you can perceive things. And, um, and the, the other guy uh, working as a consultant on, on the manga is Gary Kasparov. So that's, that's very cool. And also next month is gonna be, uh, a novel is gonna be out by Laurent Gounel. And we've worked with this author for a year. And it's very, it's a very important project because Laurent sell like between one and two million copies a year. And in this book, this book is about remote viewing and CRV. So, and it's gonna be translated in English. So you'll, you'll have it uh, in the UK and the US in maybe 2022. Um, and uh, we've trained Laurent, um, not so Laurent now is a crv -er. <laughs> and, uh, and in the book, he, the, the, the novel is, is about uh, Stargate, Stargate, CRV, uh, remote viewing. So it's really cool stuff. And we helped him uh, on this a lot. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks for your patience. <laughs> I Thanks. hope your ears don't hurt. <laughs> no, that's great. Thanks for that, Alexis. Okay, so what we'll do now is we'll move into questions. I have some in the chat, but you know, we'll, we'll start off with people if they want to raise their hand or ask a question first. Uh, so yeah, it's over to you guys. Any questions, please ask away. I have a question. I have a question for Alexis. Hello, Alexis. I'm from London, England, just across the river from you. Yeah. Um, hi. <laughs> hi, Hannah. Bonjour, bonjour, bonsoir, bonjour. Um, you say you work with the police. Do you work, the police, working for the, and obviously this is a question for Gail as well, if you work for the police, that means you're indirectly working, indirectly mm -hmm. working for the government. Do you work directly with the government as well? That's also a question for Gail as well. You, you mean on projects other than... On anything uh, for the government? Because if no. you're working for the police, then you're working indirectly with yeah. the government, but okay, you I work understand. directly yeah. with the French government or the US government. No. You don't. No, we don't. No. Maybe in the future, but no. <laughs> okay, so just working indirectly for them for now. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Question for Gail. Gail, did you want to answer that one as well? Um, so most of our work is on the civilian side. Um, we do uh, deliver information to the police and work with the police. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, okay. Question for Yeah. The location process that you used, could you describe it? Um, are you referring to the map slide that I had? Yeah, uh, did you in... have a rough idea of the area? Was it already a known area or was it like across the board from coast to coast? In the right. Um, so on that project, uh, we had no idea. 
um, the thing we were looking for had gone missing in Texas and it had been gone for quite some time. So it could have been anywhere in the world. Um, we have developed a technique that we use. Um, it's similar to dowsing, but it's not dowsing. It uses remote viewing and basically um, setting up reference targets. And then based on what the viewers describe, that kind of sends us off in a particular direction. Uh, create, it's, it's a little complicated to, to go into the detail here. Um, but it's an iterative process where based on what the viewers describe, um, we hone in on the, the location. Okay. I just had some feedback from a target that Paul O'Connor set back in 2008 from this missing Irish lady. Remember that one, Des? I was clearing out some old targets from the emails and I got confirmation and feedback on a sketch, I'll have to send it to you, of this lady that went missing. I found her a year later, exactly as I described, one kilometer from her hotel. I'll have to send it through to you, Paul. Fantastic. Yeah, it was good. I had a question for Alexis. Um, I was interested in the client that you had where I think you worded it as um, viewing the mystery object as it is to be on December 31st, 2015. And it looked like in your feedback, you provided designs of the smartwatch. I was curious, does that create kind of like a paradox? I kind of liken it to a time traveler coming back in time and giving his younger self blueprints for the time machine that he's to create. So if the design team looked at that design and that influenced the direction they went, where did that design originally come from? Do you have an idea or am I not understanding uh, how that was? I'm not sure I, I, am, I am understanding your question. That, I'm uh, sorry. The, the sketches, no, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> uh, the sketches you saw were all done during uh, the, well, all done uh, with the set remote viewing sessions. So uh, then we gave these sketches and all the data to the guys, the people who did the prototype. Um, and I, in this specific case, in this specific project, I don't think the viewers of the day, uh, I don't think they saw the the prototype or the watch, but um, for the for the um, the clothes project, the garment project, uh, we were able to buy to the company. Uh, we were the first customer. <laughs> we, we 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 bought we bought the uh, the the piece of clothes. Is that correct English? Um, and uh, then we we show we yeah then ah good do it again. We bought this uh, product, this piece of clothes, um, when when it was uh, first on sale, and I took this object. The, this was the mystery object, <laughs> and I I. Um, 
show show it to the viewers. So this was um, probably what you were talking about, uh, giving the actual thing back, <laughs> uh, giving giving it to the viewers. And actually, uh, this was uh, the article that sold the most. So we we that was clearly a hit. And we don't we it's very important. Uh, the way we work, it's very important to us to give as much feedback as possible to the viewers. And, and we really don't care about time paradox or anything like this because we see it works. So we do it. Perfect. Thank you, Lexi. Mm -hmm. So can I jump in real quick? Um, so I have a, a couple of questions for Alexi and one for Gail, but I'll save Gail's for later. Um, so Alexi, when you talked about the JUG project, you mentioned that you, you developed consensus zone based on public research. And I wasn't clear on that, but I think what you meant was the public input was actually also ESP based. In other words, you didn't give many information, you just asked them to outline where they thought it was. So this was also, they were being psychic. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We 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 had we set up a web page. Uh, it was it was only written, help us locate what we're looking for, but even us we didn't know what we were looking for. Yeah. It was it was uh, the guys on the client side who knew what they were looking for. Okay, okay. So my second question also has to do with the watch project, and it may be the same as asked. I had to step out for a minute. So if there's a repeat, just tell me you've already answered it, right? I was wondering what those, um, the client people um, that you you gave a, you know, briefly trained in CRV and then had them work on this, what did they know up front? Did they already know they were working on a watch project? No, no they only knew it was a, a, an object. Okay, so they came up with these watch ideas strictly out of the remote viewing process. Yeah, it was uh, the, the name, the word watch came out as an AOL, of course. In, uh, and it was the most uh, named AOL, yes. you know, it was, so there, it was like a consensus on AOLs. <laughs> okay. All right, well, that's an indicator. Okay, good, that answers my question. And one comment, you kept blowing past the result slides in your presentation, and that's what everybody wants to see. Like the you had comments from the customer, you said, "Oh, we'll look at we'll look at that now." And yeah, now. because it's too long. You can read them afterward. <laughs> well, that's what everybody but, wants to see. So yeah, do this again. Sit, makes it short, but okay. Sorry about watch. that, but are these clients were happy? They all they are all happy. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, yeah, good. Sure. Well, I'm well, sorry. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I had a question for Gail. Yes. Uh, Gail, you described the iterative uh, process for location determination. Uh, have mm -hmm. you ever had any uh, work where you just use simple ARV? You you have you have a known general area divided into two halves, A and B, and mm -hmm. 
And once you have a, a clear A or B answer, you divide that into two halves, C and D and so forth until you laboriously narrow it, narrow it down. Yeah, um, we have done that once that I can think of. Um, and I still don't have feedback on that project. So I can't tell you how it worked. Um, normally, when we do location work, um, the viewers are, are viewing and describing the location directly. And uh, the, the hope is that they'll describe it in sufficient detail that someone, you know, on the client side will recognize it or it will allow us to narrow things down. Um, the, my, my hesitation with using ARV for that kind of project is, you know, my understanding is that, uh, you know, even people with very good track records in ARV are maybe 60, 70% hit rate. And so if you start eliminating things uh, based on ARV, um, and especially if you're doing it iteratively, the odds of, you know, sectioning things down to a little square somewhere that actually turns out to be the right location, you know, really drops off with every iteration. So um, I'm not saying it can't be done or that it wouldn't work, but um, if we can get there with CRV and actually describing uh, the characteristics of the location, um, I, that's, that's what I would prefer to do. Thanks a lot. I think uh, Sandra Hilliard had her, had her hand up for a while there, if she's still around. Still there, Sandra? She may have gone actually. So the next one with the hand is, is done. Oh, Hi, Des. Um, Go ahead. Thank you, Gail and uh, Alexis, for the presentation. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, just a quick question. Um, with clients in different cultures, so one of you is in the US, the other is in France, is there a, a massive difference between the type of clients that you get? Um, you know, I don't know how to compare my client base to Alexi's client base. Um, based on the presentation, it sounds like there's some overlap with working with police or companies. Um, also, you know, we, we have clients from all over the world, so it's not just U.S.-based clients. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Alexi? Yeah. I'm just wondering if there's any differences between um, their openness to remote viewing. Well, um, we work for we've worked for um, French and Swiss companies, and maybe one or two in the U.S. or in Australia. Um, you have to, yeah. I have to say that we don't. We don't, uh, for example, we never use the word remote viewing. Uh, we never use, uh, we say we sell, we sell data uh, and the clients buy us information, they buy us data. They have, they have an issue or a problem or whatever. They have a question and we, we, we provide them some elements data for uh, as a piece of solution, if that makes sense. And uh, that's, that's what we do. And of course, they understand it's something kind of psychic <laughs> because we were blind. 
but they know we were blind. They know we have a lot of customers in our uh, basket, and um, we have we are lucky enough lucky enough to have a book out, and we are lucky enough to have every month we have like a radio or TV or magazine or whatever, so people know about us. And um, they, co we, they come to us and they know what to expect, <laughs> uh, so to speak. And, um, and I cannot, as Gail said, I, I cannot answer your question, Sandra, because I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, Sandra, if, if I could just add, um, so if your question is about client openness to remote viewing, um, actually, I, I was going to ask Alexi, you know, how explicit are you that you're using remote viewing? And, and you've answered that. Um, we're, we're right up front that that's the service that we offer. And so if there's going to be any resistance, we get it right at the beginning. Um, and there are definitely people who are just not open to it. So this comes up a lot on missing person cases. Uh, often the family is the first to contact us and ask for help. And we don't work directly with family. We only work through law enforcement. And so, you know, I always explain to them, if you can get the detective in charge of your case to contact me, uh, I'm happy to talk to them about doing a remote viewing project to help. Um, and sometimes the project dies right there because the detective they're working with has absolutely no interest in working with remote viewers. And that's fine. You know, it's good to know that up front because if we went off and did that whole project and they weren't going to use the information, uh, that would be a, a waste of resources. Um, other times they're very open to it, surprisingly so. Um, and I found this, especially after getting the PI license, um, that seems to be what gets my foot in the door to talk to them. And then when I do talk, to, I, I'm speaking of law enforcement, when I do talk to them, I hear, you know, from almost all of them, oh God, we hear from psychics all the time. Psychics are coming out of the woodwork and we pretty much ignore them because we have no way of sorting who the crazies are. Um, but the fact that we have, you know, we're a licensed PI agency, we do have a track record, we do have references, um, that gets us in the door. And then the ones who are open, uh, you know, they, they often don't want to really advertise that they're working with uh, an organization like ours, but they, they do make use of the information um, and they're very happy to have it. Um, we worked on one, uh, as I mentioned, we have clients all over the world. We worked on one uh, where the family had initially contacted us and then we worked with the, the local law enforcement, you know, local to them. And uh, this was in another country. And um, one of their senior law enforcement officers flew here to meet with me to discuss the case. And that was official business. I mean, his department paid for it and, and sent him here. So there, there's a surprising amount of openness to this in some places and in other places, they want nothing to do with it. And I don't fight that. You know, I just, I, I try, you know, if people are open to it and we can do some good, that's great. Um, so it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, let me uh, real quickly pipe in. In the chat, I posted a link to a video I have interviewing Bill Ray about how law enforcement feels about remote viewing and psychics. He's got some personal experience because he worked closely with law enforcement for several years. So 
anybody's interested can access the chat. Thanks, guys. Thank uh, let's go with Don next because he's had his hand up there for a while. Okay, uh, let me see if I can formulate this question. I have a background in product design, uh, product development, product design. And uh, Gail, you were talking about uh, that food processor blade issue, right? Yes. And um, okay, I guess I've never heard of uh, product design using RV before <clears throat> to determine fit and fitness and um, or incurring lawsuits or recalls or whatever. Right. And um, uh, I'm just trying to like wrap my head around this concept. I mean, like if I were developing a product, would I actually try to go to a remote viewing organization such as yours or Alexi and, and say, um, I've got something, tell me if it's gonna fail in the field or, you know, how would I even, approach the uh yeah the yeah great great question um you remember the slide that said we're in the information business yeah if you can formulate a question and the answer to that question is a piece of information we can probably help you find that so if you're okay. if you want to know how something's going to perform in the field if you want to know you know what's the biggest problem it's going to have after it's introduced to the market and its current design that's the kind of thing we could look at um i can't okay, give a so lot of i would have to design it already before no I could... no i mean i'm just that's, that's just one example um so i'll give you another example from a client project um and i can't give specific details because of confidentiality but the basic situation was uh the client came and uh the client had access to a particular patent portfolio and the client wanted to know what's the optimal product to develop, you know, based on this set of intellectual property rights, what would wow. be the optimal product to develop? And um, so we, that was a really fun project to work on. Um, the viewers, you know, the sessions came back, lots of sketches. Um, I didn't, I can't claim that I understood everything the viewers did because it was quite technical, but I reported it to the client and it seemed to make perfect sense to the client. Uh, and the client said, wow, this is, you know, actually quite similar to some of the things I'd, we'd been considering. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of places, I think, along the development stage, everything from the very beginning of the design stage through identifying problems um, where, where it could be used. So, um, yeah, I love doing technology projects. I wish we had more of them. Um, you yeah, know this is really mind-blowing in a way you know it's using yeah. rv in the design process wow okay thank you yeah thanks for your question uh, i'll start with a question here from the chat because we got a few there as well and it's from rich and it's for alexis and he wants to know are your courses available in english or are they in french you're muted alexis Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, we sometimes give courses in English, uh, but the the online courses are are only in French. But if if you come to us or if you want us to come to you, we can do it in English. Yep. Uh, Daz. Yep. I'd, I'd like to answer to a question from Heather. Okay. Uh, thanks. 
she's she asked how does remote viewing assist with a painter or writer um I'm going to give you an example. Uh, a few weeks ago, we did a project for a TV series um, for uh, the the um, for a producer of a TV series. He wanted to to set up um, uh, a scene, a scenery where uh, the the locale where to shoot um, inside and outside. Uh, to, to design the locale, okay? And uh, so it's perfect for remote viewing. We just uh, did a, a project uh, and we described how this place looked like inside and outside. And inside, so the, the, um, the artistic director can design the place like this and um, and um, on the outside, they wanted to shoot in a real, an actual, an actual place. And last week, they located the actual place, looking exactly uh, what the sessions uh, uh, described and sketched and everything. And it's in the exact specific area where they wanted to shoot. So. It's 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 very easy. It's like it's it's almost the easiest remote viewing project. And for a writer, for example, when a writer uh, want uh, um, a situation with uh, characters doing something in a, spe a specific place or locale, you do the, the same thing. You describe what the characters are living, you know, and doing in this specific situation. So mainly we feel, uh, you say that, we feel the, the holes, as you say. The void. The void. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Alexis. Um, I'm relatively new to CRV. I'm training with Laurie Williams. Um, I'm in the intermediate stage and she spoke about you know, that it can help artists and writers. And I am a writer as well. And I, my thought was, well, how can RV help me? How can I do this? So you've explained that really well. So I guess if they are, if say for instance, the writer is, is stuck with how a character or what the character does, then the RV can help them come to that conclusion. Okay, yeah, that really does it. It wasn't explained to me, so but you've explained it perfectly. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And, and funny enough, uh, one of, uh, say that, actual, actually, Paul, Paul Smith did a session on this, and one of his AOL was film set. So I thought, oh, I, in, in targeting, you know, in, uh, in the tasking, uh, I did not do a very good job because he was not only seeing this, the, the TV series, you know, okay. he was also seeing and describing the, the set. <laughs> All right, okay. So for the other viewers, I changed a little bit the tasking. <laughs> okay. 
Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks, Alexis. Um, we have a hand up for quite a while now from Axel, if you want to go ahead and ask your question. Yes, thanks. Um, yeah, I have a question actually for, for both of you. Um, regarding paying customers, how do you come to an agreement with your paying customers about the outcome of a project? I mean, uh, do they pay upfront or do they pay on a, on a, on a, on a rating of the sessions or uh, do they just donate uh, based on their, on their value that they gain from the session? Or, or I don't know if you, if you are willing to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take that one. Um, we really have two kinds of situations that we're dealing with. One is paying clients and one is pro bono. Um, and we do both kinds. Um, the pro bono is more things like missing person cases. Uh, we've never turned anyone away for lack of ability to pay. In fact, I'm not sure we've ever even charged for a missing person case. Um, that's just our way to be of service. Um, and I, I really appreciate the viewers stepping up and working on those time and time again. Um, but on the paying side, uh, you know, I'm not allergic to money. If a client's going to use our work for their own benefit to, you know, on a business project or something that's of interest to them, um, then they should pay. This is a service and the viewers are professionals. Uh, these are people who've spent years or decades developing their skills. So, uh, you know, I'm not shy about uh, asking the client to pay for that. Um, we have that conversation right at the beginning when we're scoping out the project. So we, we, I spend a lot of time at the beginning with the client to really understand what problem they're trying to solve so that I can set up the tasking to get whatever that information is that they need. Um, and so, you know, as we you know, work together to, to craft that target definition, uh, then we talk about how many viewers they'd like to have on the team. Um, you know, I recommend, we, we, we won't work on anything with fewer than three uh, because, it, you know, one viewer can be fantastic and they can be providing great information. But when you have multiple viewers, the, the patterns in the data, the important patterns really start to pop out. And um, so, you know, three is our minimum and then it can go up from there to, to many more. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we have that conversation up front and I make sure they understand what it will cost. We don't do uh, contingent. Uh, your question was, you know, is there some kind of, you know, does it depend on, um, no, because they're, they're paying for the process and the service. And the fact is sometimes clients don't like the answer they get from us. It doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't mean the answer is wrong. Um, or sometimes, uh, you know, you, the information we provide needs to be combined with other things, uh, you know, other information the client has, or the client needs to take some action on it before it can, you know, you can tell whether it was accurate or not. Um, and so what, what they're paying for is the process of having experienced, you know, professional level CRVers apply the CRV methodology and, and deliver that information to them. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I can imagine that they maybe approach you first with a, with a smaller project just to test it out or so before mm -hmm. they come with the big uh, important stuff for them or so. Is it like that? Sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes we'll start on a project and we'll do the first piece uh, and they're happy with it. And then they'd like us to work on a, a bigger piece or, 
you know, a second project that they have. Um, so, you know, then that's always great because then they understand, you know, they know what the process is, they know what they're going to get. And um, yeah, that's great. So as usual, it's based on trust in the end, right? That they have the confidence that you can uh, provide results and then they are, of course, they are willing to pay for it, right? Um, yeah, I guess you could say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Gail, I have a question as a follow-up to something you just said. Also, yes. oh, I'd like to thank Alexis and you both for the presentations. If I understood Alexis correctly, you also only use CRV trained people for your projects. And if Sandra is still out there, I believe I've heard you say, could each of you, Alexis, Gail, and Sandra, take a second for the broader audience to understand why do you require your viewers to be CRV trained? Uh, if, um, <laughs> to me, the answer is easy uh, because CRV is by far the best methodology I've seen. So to at least to train and to get efficient, then why not? You can you can move <laughs> to other methodology, and at some point, each viewer develop his or her own style and get efficient, you know, more efficient. But CRV is, uh, well, as I said, it's uh, nothing is perfect, uh, but CRV is, yeah, it's the best way. To do things. Yep. Thanks for that. Um, we have a question from well, Paul Cosby, well, who's that actually. I, hold on. Um, so actually, yeah, I, I'd like to answer that question also about CRV. Also Sandra, if she's still out there. If that's okay. Um, so first of all, I I want to be really clear. There are plenty of methods that work. I've seen people using other things and produce you know, really interesting and, and good results. So um, I'm not going to say that CRV is the only thing that works. Um, but there is a reason why that's what I use at the HUSIC group. Um, and that is the CRV structure is very disciplined. And it makes it very easy for me as an analyst going through a session to see um, how that data is coming to the viewer. It makes it easier for me to see if that viewer is starting to kind of spin out into imagination as opposed to good perceptions. Um, so that's one reason. Uh, another one is that's what I'm trained in. So if I'm doing the analysis of a viewer's work, it helps that I am trained in the same method that the viewer is using. Um, because, you know, if you've ever seen a full session from an advanced viewer, it gets quite technical and there's a lot of notation there. And if you haven't been trained in that particular methodology, there's a lot of nuances uh, that you're likely to miss that could turn out to be really important. Um, you know, one example for people who know CRV, um, if a perception is put in the AI column in the P4 matrix, that means something different than if that very same word was written in the EI for the SI column. Um, just that one little difference conveys completely different meaning. And if you weren't trained in that method, you, you would miss that. Um, I have in the past uh, on a few occasions worked with uh, natural psychics or people trained in other methodologies. Um, what I found with uh, the natural psychic was, or natural psychics, um, 
incredible ability to initially get on the signal line, uh, get target contact, give interesting information, and then they're done. Um, and they didn't have the tools that a CRVer has to move around the target, probe the target, and and you know just like on the um, the food processor, you know it wasn't enough to describe a food processor. We already knew the target was a food processor. The question is, what's the problem it's going to have? Um, and so. Um, at least the natural psychics that I had worked with. I mean, there's no doubt that there was something psychic going on there, but they didn't have the, the ability to receive the retasking and really hone in on the, the information that we needed the way that CRV does. Um, I have found in working with people trained in other methodologies, again, you know, good viewers, I'm, I'm not gonna, gonna say anything negative about that. Um, but it wasn't very efficient because I had to keep going back to them and saying, hey, I don't understand, you know, what you're doing here. Can you explain it to me? This isn't the method I've been trained in. Um, and if you're working on something where there's a deadline and you've got 10 viewers sending in sessions and retaskings, um, having everybody using the same method uh, just helps with analysis and, and getting the result all the way to the client. So um, that's maybe a long-winded answer, but I think it's an important, it was a really good question, Russell. It's um, that's that's why we do CRV at the Houston Group. Yeah, um, I th I think uh, the similar similar thing to Gail as an analysis when you're doing an analysis, if you have a consistent format, uh, it's much easier to process all the data and you have a good overview of what the viewers doing. Uh, a natural psychic, you have no clue what they're actually doing. And CRV is such a structured process that it clearly shows what information you get from the viewer and how to put that in a report for the clients. Anyone else on that topic? Or? Another topic. Okay, uh, well, let me ask, uh, let me get Paul to ask his question first because he's had his hand up sure. for quite well, a while. First of all, which Paul? Paul Cosby's had his hand up for a while. Is, yeah, is Paul that... Cosby first, yeah. Okay. Uh, Gail, I, I wanted to thank you for your answer on ARV and location. I, the, the question I, I had, which I didn't state, was if you have a featureless location, such as a, you know, a desert or a lake where something's under the lake or under an ocean, you know, stage one through stage four is not gonna really give you a clarification as to, uh, you know, so I mean, you, can you use stage six uh, scalar methods successfully for location? Okay, um, I understand. Um, yeah, I mean, if you have a featureless location, um, then you do need to turn turn to other tools. And so uh, something like ARV, you know, where I explained I wouldn't want to use it on an iterative basis normally. Um, if you don't have a lot of other choices, um, that might be helpful. Um, and, and you're right, you know, when we're doing missing person work, if the person happens to be in a really interesting area, it's very easy for the viewers to describe nearby landmarks and sketch them. Um, if they're out in the wilderness, um, and sometimes you get cases like that, you know, they can give a perfectly accurate description. You know, the person's on the ground next to a tree and that tree's next to another tree and that tree's next to some more, you know, and that can go on. <laughs> um, and so you do need to come up with other tools. Um, dousing is another, another tool that can be used. 
Um, as I answered Rick's question earlier, there's some, some ways that we view reference points. It's not exactly ARV and it's not exactly dousing, but um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if the, the qualitative descriptions don't get you there because it's just not distinct enough, then sure, you can, you can use other tools. Thank you. Paul, do you want to go next? Yeah, um, I want to go back to the analysis thing for a moment, but first uh, refer to the stage six question. You know, stage three is also, I, I think the term scalar you're using probably means dimensional, right? Generally speaking. And uh, stage three, remember, is also a dimensional stage. And so I've seen people be able to do exactly what you're talking about in anywhere from stage three into stage four. And, and obviously stage six is also applicable here. So um, your tools aren't limited just because it happens to be underwater or underground or whatever. Uh, you can still access it through earlier stages in the remote viewing process, the CRV process. So anyway, my, my analysis question is for Gail. Okay, so, and this will require a little bit of background, but uh, to, to introduce the question, but the basic question is in your, for example, we'll use this as an example, your Cuisinart project, which I thought was quite impressive. Um, of course, working in that context, you were witting to what the target was. So as the analyst, you already knew what kind of data you might expect to find, right? So, um, and, and this is an issue when you run into analysis anywhere, not just in remote viewing, but Intel analysis or any other kind of analysis uh, where there's a lot of qualitative material you have to get together. Mm -hmm. um, when I used to do operations and most of my operations now, I refer them to Gail and then if she wants to task me, I'll do them, right? Uh, because she's got the patience and the time to, to actually do the management process. Um, so I think she's providing a really valuable uh, resource to the community in general. Um, but when I used to do it, oftentimes when I did a, a full on uh, project, um, I would actually get a couple of analysts to analyze the data blind before they ever knew what the actual target was, because I wanted to make sure that the data wasn't so noisy that I would be injecting an a priori bias into the analytical process and cherry picking the data out. Okay, so obviously when you present a thing like this, you're gonna show the juicy tidbits. You're not gonna show all of this overburden of stuff that you had to pull the tidbits out of. Yep. In particularly the Cuisinart project, if you had had blind judging done on this in advance of, of, of the raw data, how well do you think the judges would have been able or the analysts would have been able to tease out the core data here? Uh, on that particular one, I think it would have been pretty easy. Um, I mean, the viewers really did go for those, for the blades. Um, um, and you're right. I mean, I, you know, there were many pages of sessions and I did pull out the interesting parts to make a, a slide. Um, but, um, I mean, it was, it was pretty good. Uh, you know, they were describing the spinning thing and they were describing that it was, some of them were saying it's in a liquid, kind of a chunky liquid kind of environment. And then they were describing something breaking, you know, and the pieces coming off. So um, I think that one would have been pretty easy. Um, but as you say, that was already known, right? That was a practice target that I had set up. We already knew what the answer was. Um, and you're right, it is more challenging um, when you're working on something uh, for a client where you're going for the unknown and you get all this information in from the viewers. 
Um, and I think that's one of the challenges in analysis is not, to, and, and that's one of the reasons I never view on the same project where I'm the manager, because if I viewed it, I mean, it's just human nature. You're going to weight more heavily the sessions that come in that match what you got in your session and maybe discount the stuff that you didn't get. Um, so I try to stay as neutral as possible. Um, one, one way that I deal with the issue is, first of all, I don't withhold any information from the client. I don't decide this is good, that that's bad, and, and you know, package something so that they only get, I, I, you know, I make sure they get, you know, if a viewer reported it, the client gets it. Mm -hmm. So my, um, because they may know things I don't know, or it may trigger, you know, a thought about something that, that they could use that I, I wouldn't have known because they're the ones who have the knowledge in that domain of whatever their question was. So my analysis comes in more in terms of uh, pointing out to the client patterns that I'm seeing popping out of the data, which I tend to keep in a separate part of the report, either in an introduction that says, hey, here's some interesting patterns you may want to watch for when you go through, um, or I may do some analyst notes to go with the report. Um, but I think an analyst has to stay pretty humble because if, you know, if you start, you know, developing a strong theory of what you think the right answer is, uh, you know, you really, you know, one thing that Lynn taught me early on is, you know, um, hire viewers that you trust and then trust them, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, actually listen to what the viewers say and use their work. Um, so yeah, I mean, analysis is, it's a challenge. Um, but you know, my, I, I don't, there's no principled basis that I know of for withholding some information and letting others through. Um, you know, the only way to do that is if you already know the answer. And if you already knew the answer, you wouldn't be doing a remote viewing project. All right. I, I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, I'm and, sorry oh, and, and by the way, I should say, I am always thrilled to have your time as a viewer. So, oh, well, <laughs> well I've, I'm, I'm thrilled to give it to you when I have it. <laughs> so, Anyway, yeah, I, I'm sorry, John. Uh, I, I guess it's your turn. I hope I haven't diverted the conversation too far for you. <laughs> if you're talking to me, no, Paul, that's fine. Uh, okay. Yeah, um, so here I'm really appreciative of uh, both presentations and the fact that we have two successful companies with hiring people, with have employees, uh, and that hasn't happened for 18 years in this field, and you all use CRV. Um, so my question is, uh, sort of how did you, what do what you recommend for the rest of us, the rest of these two countries and other countries to build successful businesses as you have? Because there's so few, there's clearly a lot of barriers. I think it sounds like France has uh, a more open society than the United States. But anyway, that's my basic question. I figured you two as successful people would have insights into how others maybe could do that. Sure. Um, you know, I think, we, we were actually talking before this started, uh, Alexi and Daz and I were talking and I said, you know, it's funny, this field is so young. There's so much potential. Um, there are 7 billion people on the planet and every single one of them has at least one problem a remote viewer could help them with, um, right? So I, I think we are just at the very, very early stages uh, of what remote viewing can be used for. Um, I, ha I think there's a lot of resistance when you, you know, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, you know, I, I, 
think there's a lot of resistance when you come out with, you know, a strong marketing and you're making wild claims and that just doesn't always go very well. Um, I think what works well is, um, you know, talk, you know, grow where you're planted, you know, talk to the people around you who know you, who know you're not a crazy person, um, you know, and it, as I mentioned, the very first project I ever did uh, that was, you know, brought together a team and did work for a client was for Tim O'Brien, who had been given up for adoption uh, as an infant, was looking for his birth mom. Um, I had known Tim for 15 years before I did that project. Um, our kids were in kindergarten together. He lives in my neighborhood. Um, I was asked to come in on that project because um, Tim had hired our, the ex-police chief of our little town to help him uh, as an investigator on that. And that police chief knew me uh, and asked if I would work on that project. Um, so that wasn't me going out marketing, making a big noise. That was just me talking to people that I already knew who trusted me. Um, and we started with that. And if you do a good job, they're going to tell other people and you may get more, you know, it, it can snowball. Um, you know, my background in Silicon Valley, I've been back and talked to many of my former colleagues there uh, who I worked with at the law firm, people who've gone in to venture capital since then, who've started their own businesses since then. Um, and <laughs> the conversation with each one of them, at some point we would get to the part of the conversation and they would say, this stuff sounds crazy to me, but I know you. So there must be something to it. Right. And so, you know, word of mouth. I mean, yes, we have a website. We do get some some stuff through the website, but the best projects often are just word of mouth. Um, and so, you know, my best advice is just, um, you know, work within the circle of people who already know you and and, you know, build from there. May I ask, answer that question Please. too? Please, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you, Gail. Um, yeah, first, uh, John, in France, we are the most narrow-minded country in the <laughs> Western world. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think so, man. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, you know, we are the, the country of Descartes. Oh, that's, um, but um, yeah, but French loves French people love uh, methodology. Okay, so everything which deals with protocols, they love it. So remote viewing is a protocol. <laughs> CRV is a protocol. So that's a good, the good, good thing uh, about uh, starting a company in the field, the remote viewing field. It's like any other field, don't care about the field, care about the company. It's just um, very often I hear, well, it's, it's not easy or it's, it's, it might be complicated because people, people can be narrow-minded or not open enough. Well, uh, just don't care about this. Uh, it's like any new company in a new field. Gail said, we are in a very new field. Remote viewing is very new. So 
think about when the telephone started, the car started, everything, you know, it, it takes years and years. Um, and what matters is how you're going to manage the company, whatever, whatever the field you are in, whatever the, the tool. If you, yeah, companies, the clients, as Gail said, it's all uh, word of mouth, as you say in English. If you want to market it, uh, it's not gonna work very well because if you go upfront like this, because it's too new and it's too weird in a way, and it's too innovative. Um, so people won't get what you're talking about. But when you're talking about, okay, I have, I run a company and we sell information, we sell data and to help you solve your problem, then you've got an, you've got the, an ear, let's say. And, um, and then these, the client, the future clients <laughs> start asking you about your previous clients, your track record, and then there you go. Um, thanks for the answers. If I could make one statement in closing about this um, based on experience. Uh, I have to second very strongly what you said of using viewers as one method of training. Uh, Daz and I were part of the Aurora group for about three years and we spent quite a bit of time trying to get up to speed. We had viewers from three or four different methods. We were on three continents. We were in different time zones. And we sort of got a little off the ground, but then we didn't, we, we crashed. And the previous group I was in also used just one methodology, the transdimensional system. They had a, we had a, a, it's a going business too, and that was all uh, viewers using the same method. So I certainly agree with that point of view that you should uh, have uniform uh, viewers. It makes it much easier for the analysts and the project managers. And thanks very much again for the answers and for the presentation. And one last word, um, as for any company, you need to have a locale, you have to have offices, you need to have a website, you need to have all this, because people, if they don't understand what you're doing, at least they can go where you work and, and, and give you a phone call. Sometimes we have people <laughs> uh, at, at the front door of the office and, oh, you're there, somebody's there. <laughs> okay, and, uh, and you have someone to answer the phone anytime, like any other company, that's what matters most. We don't care about the tool, you know, it's, it's, it's secondary. So our experience, I would say, is the opposite of that. Um, because we offer remote viewing services right up front. That's why people come to us. Um, and it is by word of mouth um, very often. Um, we, I mean, especially this past year with the lockdown, of course, we've had no in-person meetings with clients and yet we've been very busy. Um, but even before that, um, the the physical meetings were, were very few and far between. Uh, we have clients from all over the world they're contacting us because of the service we offer, not because of where we are. Um, so, for the way it, for the way that we run uh, our projects, you know, simply having an internet connection is is really 
all, all you need to communicate with the clients. Um, but I think, you know, Alexi, you and I, uh, you know, have a, have a different marketing approach. Um, and, um, you know, as I said, people come to us specifically for the remote viewing. Yeah, and I think I think that's that's a cultural difference. Because in France, nobody knows about remote viewing. It's not we we were the first. You know, mm -hmm. it's a uh, the 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 name. It's it's an English English terms. You know, and right. uh, and and. Um, all this is a US and UK thing at the origin. And mm -hmm. in France, it's completely unknown. So um, yeah, it's the environment, the cultural environment is different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks guys. Uh, I'm gonna go with a question here from the chat because we've got quite a few and it's from Chris. He wants to know, Alexis and Gail, have any of your teams worked on software solutions? No. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, once, like 10 years ago, we helped. Uh, uh, when, when you mean software solution, it means client, clients in the software business. Is that? That is correct. It's basically they okay. ask for what kind of solution they okay. you yeah. guys will suggest, and you go by what yeah, basically go forward with that and say, okay, this is the best solution that you can uh, yeah. come up with, and the clients actually produce that solution and becomes maybe not the best setup, but very good on the market. Example. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh. Two or three times we help uh, design websites, but ten years ago uh, we did work for an IT company, a software development company, and they had a bug. Uh, they couldn't manage; uh, they couldn't find the solution. And we did the project, and we found out that the issue was not in the code, in the source code. It was an issue coming from, uh, I don't know how to say that in English, from the design. It was um, before coding, the coding process. And all the people were looking in the code. And they spent a few weeks looking for where this bug uh, came from in the code. But it was not a code problem. It was a database. and and data in the database issue. And we, we found out uh, this specific information and then they, they could move forward, yeah. On a similar vein, another question after that in the chat is, have any of you worked on a project related to AI or do you have a personal opinion or have you tried to see what the impact of AI would be in the next 20 to 50 years? So that's a very broad question. Um, certainly it's the kind of thing you could do a project on. Um, although I have to say most of the projects we do and the kinds that I like to do the most have a more focused like a particular piece of information that you're looking for. 
um, and something that's feedbackable. So um, yeah, I mean, you, you could definitely look at that, um, but I don't know, you know, figuring out the scope of that project uh, would be a conversation to have with the client. Um, Yeah, Alexi. Uh, yeah, and as I come from uh, this specific area, uh, a few years ago, two years ago, we started and we are we are working on this. We are in the lab. We are working on the project um, mixing, <laughs> so to speak, remote viewing and AI. But it's a it's a it's not. We don't use remote viewing for this project. It's, it's more, um, how do you say that? It's a scientific article we are writing uh, and it's related to the Turing test. And, um, we're, and we are, and we started three or four months ago, we started to develop uh, games, um, uh, video games, smartphone games, online games uh, to test this, uh, I think we can, we can call that a thought experiment. Okay. Um, also, but it was not for a client, it was for fun, so to speak, and training. We, yeah, we, we did a, a small project a few years ago to perceive uh, how AI would be, I think it was like 2050, yeah, but nothing for clients, just for fun. Before we go to the chat questions, uh, do any of you guys on the video windows there want to ask any more questions? All silent, I guess. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, I was raising my hand, but oh, I good, did have a question, it, yeah. if that's okay. Yep. Um, it's actually kind of a generic question for... Um, uh, you, Daz, obviously, Alexi and Gail, uh, Lynn and all you guys. Um, recently, Daz, you put up a video on your YouTube channel um, where you were doing, and I forget the, the name of the airplane, but it was a passenger jet that potentially was shot down or had a malfunction. And so Courtney Brown said, um, he made a point that when you doubt your own results, uh, it's usually accurate data or impressions because the mind or the analytical overlay does not doubt itself. His exact quote was, the conscious mind never discredits its own stuff. I was just curious if you guys would back that from your own experience, if you find that uh, when one of your remote viewers are possibly doubting their session that they would have a more accurate um, data set or do you so see any correlation? Let me respond to that right now. It's not at all true. <laughs> I have seen so many instances where remote viewers, even really good ones, doubted their data, they questioned that they were right, and once the ground truth was known, they were absolutely spot on. So doubting is a conscious left brain kind of a behavior that has no real reflection on what the data is that you produced. If you've done it in the right way, you take what you get, and you go from there. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would say um, I, I would I would phrase it a little differently. Um, I don't see much of a correlation between confidence level 
and accuracy. So, you know, you can have a viewer who has, you know, a really strong AI and, and really, you know, and, and feels very confident about the session and they are accurate. You can also have a viewer who's very confident and they are just off castle building and in the whole thing's imagination. Um, and the flip side of that is um, I very frequently get sessions from viewers almost apologizing when they send in their session and saying, oh, you know, I just, if, you know, if I, if I missed it, you know, let me know and I'll try it again. And of course it's, you know, a brilliant session and it's right on target. So um, I, I, I think it's a mistake to try and draw a conclusion either way from a viewer's confidence level. I think it's more important just that, as Paul said, you know, they stick with their structure, they write down what they get and don't try, you know, the viewer shouldn't try to, to overanalyze, you shouldn't try to analyze it at all. Just get it, write it down, turn it in. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's because you're just more diplomatic than me, Gail. <laughs> <laughs> but the actual oh, truth oh. is, and that reminds me that actually SRI research showed that they, there's a number of uh, mentions in their, in their reporting that said that, that uh, you can't correlate a viewer level of confidence on how well they did with their actual accuracy. So that substantiates what you said, Gail. And, and, and with, I, with training, uh, people learn to trust your subconscious mind, but beginners often don't understand what they're getting logically. And so they doubt themselves. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, but no, there, there doesn't seem to be a correlation. Paul's exactly right. Um, but for beginning viewers, yeah, if they don't understand what they're getting and they can't name it, they will doubt themselves and doubt that they're doing any good. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, excellent. Nice Thank to, you. Nice to, nice to see you. Um, it, it, this actually goes with another point that I made at the very beginning of my presentation, which is why I think it's important for a project manager to also be a trained viewer. Um, and one of, you know, one of the places where that comes up is when I get one of these sessions from a viewer and, you know, the, the insecurity and the, the doubt, the self-doubt um, until you've had to do a session and turn it in and, and feel that pit in your stomach of, not having any idea whether it's any good and whether you're just going to embarrass yourself. Um, I, I think having a project manager who has also experienced that on the viewer side is helpful um, because when viewers send work to me, um, you know, that keeps me honest as a project manager, right? You know, I know what that feels like. And so I'm never going to criticize or embarrass a viewer for something they turn in, no matter how weird, you know, I, I want the viewers to be 100% comfortable writing down whatever comes into their head and sending that to me. And I want them to, you know, to know that that's going to, I may not understand it, uh, and they may or may not be right, but that information is going to be received in a respectful way, because I know, I know what that feels like um, to send something in and have no idea whether or not you were on target. You know, I'll throw something out there as a student. Um, I think the inverse is, is also true. When uh, Joff and I took Paul's first operational course, the level of respect and appreciation for the project manager, analyst, it went through the roof. Uh, I remember Paul handled us, it was a, a many years ago, real life session 
seven different viewer sessions and without telling us anything about what the project was, we were supposed to look through these seven sessions. I tell you, I sat down there at that uh, hotel lobby probably till four in the morning with a you know, cross-reference sheet. Okay, they all got blue. They all got, you know, trying to figure it out. Still ended up off, kind of got maybe slightly in the ballpark. Um, the remote viewing, in my opinion, is the easy job uh, after seeing what actually goes into it. I know uh, Lynn also teaches people operational management, but if anybody here gets a chance to take a course to find out what your project manager is suffering, uh, I think probably the best testimony is that Paul gives his projects to Gail. Um, it's just, it's, it's not easy and it's massively time consuming. It's confusing, the pressure, the responsibilities on you. So I, I think, and then just one side note on the, the topic we were just discussing, when I finally quit, you know, the, the doubt, if you doubt your session, it's going to be good. And I've seen, I've seen some things myself where, oh, I think this is going to be horrible. It was good. And then a couple of times where I was dead certain, oh man, I nailed it. I was wrong. So I, I think that's in the mix. But, but the point is both of those stem from the urge to be right. And back to what all of Alexis and Gail and Paul and Lynn have just said, you know, just do the process. Sometimes you're gonna be more accurate than others. Once in a while, you'll hit one out of the park. You know, another, there was homeworks that I was just sick scanning and sending to Paul to have reviewed just so far off. And, and so it just, it's gonna be across the spectrum. And if you keep applying and ingraining the process, eventually it's gonna be leaning towards more and more and more accuracy over whatever period of time it takes. You know, Daz has been doing this for 24 years. I'm three years into serious training. So I have 21 years. Will I be as good as Daz? I don't know, I have no idea, but I know if I keep doing it, I know if I keep applying the process, I know if I keep listening to my mentors, it's gonna get better and it's not gonna happen fast. So anyways, all right. Alexi, how are we doing for time for you? Are you, you okay to carry on with a few questions or would you like to? Barry at the stage. Yeah, thanks for asking. Let's say 10 minutes. Because <laughs> okay. I have an okay. hour drive then. And it's... I have a question here from Rid. He, uh, and I think we've answered some of this in, in the presentation, there, but he said, do your clients request precognitive information? And if so, do you guys have uh, track records? Uh, and are they worse when dealing with uh, future precognition? I don't know if I understand this question well. Uh, may you repeat, please? Yeah, uh, Rid's asking uh, if you do precognitive work, and I guess you do because some of your targets you were describing ah, okay. were for uh, products thanks. that didn't exist thanks. yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. like uh, clients asking for something in the future, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, that's about 90% of the time. But 75% of what we do is innovation. So it's something that we can grab from the future, right? And um, so, yeah. And 10% is, I don't know, 10 or 20% of the clients ask for something in the past or in the present time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will comment on that one also. Um... Yes, sometimes uh, we do get asked for future 
information. Um, an example that I'm thinking of um, that comes up in, in the missing person context. Um, if the person you're looking for is still alive and on the move, uh, oftentimes by the, you know, by the time the viewer can accurately describe you know, where they are at a particular date and time and get their session done and turned in and that gets analyzed and turned into a report and passed to the client, uh, it may be accurate, but that person's moved on to another place. And so we have on some missing person cases, um, you know, it, if the person's, you know, dead and you're looking for remains, that's, that's fine to look for where they are at a recent date because they're probably not moving. But if it's someone who is on the move and, and the initial work indicates that they're probably still alive and out there moving around, um, then we have done work where we have targeted a, a near future date say, you know, where will they be next Saturday at 11 a.m. local time? Um, and uh, the one case I'm thinking of right now where we did that, you know, then you're under time pressure, right? You really have to scramble and the viewers better hit their deadlines because you don't want to do all that work and give it to them on Sunday. Um, so we did that one and uh, we were able to match it to a place on a map. Um, it was a huge amount of work, but everybody scrambled. We got it. Um, and um, they, this, this was actually a frustrating case. Uh, the client actually chose not to go out in the field uh, that day. And so the information became stale. Um, it was especially frustrating because the information we had given them previously uh, had, had panned out. You know, what we had given them before about where the person was, they had gone there, there were eyewitnesses that confirmed that the person had just recently been there, they'd even given a description of the vehicle they'd been seen in. So we knew the viewers were doing good work. Um, to this day, I don't know why the client didn't make use of that, you know, because we had, uh, at before we did the work, we did talk to them and say, okay, you know, we're going to tell you where they're going to be, or we're going to describe where they're going to be. Saturday at 11 a.m. Um, so you need to make sure if we're able to match that to something on a map, you know, you need to be there waiting. Uh, you know, you may want to be there with video recording equipment because if they're coming through in a car, they may, you know, they may pass quickly, but at least you'll catch it on video. Um, but yeah, so that's that's one example of precognitive work. Um, my personal opinion uh, on accuracy in general is uh, precog work may not be as accurate as uh, past or present, uh, simply because if you believe in free will, uh, you know the future may not be set in stone the way the the present or the past are set in stone. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't have data to back that up. That's that's my personal opinion. Excellent, thanks for that, guys. And um, I got one final question from the chat here from Cedric. He he asked. Do you, uh, what tools do you guys use to analyze or correlate your uh, viewers' data? Is there any specific uh, software you use or, or any tools yeah, to do that? At, at Iris, we, we've started by developing uh, a soft, software, piece of software. Yeah, um, very, very early on. Uh, in fact, I think I've shown that so many times. <laughs> but, uh, I can um, say that I can share my screen and and, and show it to to the people. Uh, yep, go ahead. Yep. Okay. 
so that's the workload. Yeah, this is some screenshots. Uh, so on the left side, you have the sessions. Here you have four sessions, for example. You can see the first one. And um, here you can see all the, the data, uh, the pieces of information. Um, on the left column, you have IO2, for example, that means uh, intuitive, per, um, let's say remote viewer two, and it's uh, piece of information number 44. And uh, this, I say that, which um, when all the sessions are done, I send them to the analyst. The analyst works blind first, and uh, he tra the, the analyst transcribes all the sessions. And then we, we feed the software with the sessions and the software split all the data, you know, uh, pieces of information. And then um, the software help the analyst to sort uh, all the data and to uh, do the consensus analysis. Um, the software doesn't have that much of intelligence by itself. It's not, it's not, the software is not intelligent. Uh, just a little bit. Um, because this task is so difficult even for a human being. <laughs> For, for an AI, it's just not possible nowadays, maybe in 10 or 20 years, but, um, but um, having the, the software, it frees a lot the, the mind of the analyst. That means that the analyst can, uh, has more, uh, uh, let me say that, his mind can be more efficient doing the analysis, the analysis using the software. And then the software uh, at the end of the process um, create, um, create a, um, a file and it's then you it's it's written and then you have you just have to phrase it in a proper proper way. And then that's what we send to the client. Uh, maybe I can show this. Um, it, you can see the quantity of data generated by the viewers during a one hour remote viewing session. And when we started to use the software uh, at the late, in late 2009, you can see that just after this, the viewers started to produce a lot more data. This was very interesting. This is very interesting. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Alexi, Maybe... a... I'm sorry to interrupt. Does, does the... the software weight those terms all equally or does it have a way of weighting some perceptions as being more important than others? No, everything is, is the same, same weight. It's uh, the analyst uh, or the analysts who 
the weight is due to, uh, is done um, I say that the weight is the consensus here for example uh, you have when you have two or three viewers saying the same thing that piece of data is more important uh, as there is a consensus I don't know I don't know exactly how to explain this but um, this doesn't mean this piece of information is has a better quality <laughs> but it means that if three or four viewers describe the same thing uh, it this specific piece of information would be highlighted for the client because it's it's safer <laughs> in a way <laughs> okay but we as you said gail we also deliver everything to the client we deliver the analysis uh, this the the synthesis synthesis um, and also at the end of the of the uh, document we deliver to the client we we have all the raw data all the sessions exactly as they were produced by the viewers so the client has everything and yes um, Alexis yes. Is your software using like a synonym system to use comparable words like a vehicle or a car? Nope. No, it's, it's, yeah, we've talked about this, <laughs> Sandra. Uh, uh, no, no, no. It's um, maybe someday, but um, I think it's, um, as a, I think it's it could be, of course, very interesting, but at the same time, it's quite risky. And um, maybe maybe uh, computer science and AI someday will be good enough. Um, and even that, if that happens, I don't know if um, say that. Sometimes synonyms are not, um, see, when you have two pieces of information very close, they're not synonym. It's very interesting to, to proceed them and to sort them as synonym or very close. You know? And if you go to that path using a computer, it's, it's so wide and working blind, a computer, it's, it's very difficult for a human to analyze something blind. And for a computer, there's nothing to relate on, you know. So, and it's, it's gonna cost us uh, a lot to develop such intelligent software. It's a lot more um, efficient and a lot less expensive to have a human being do the job. I, I think humans still bring something uh, that the machines don't um, when it comes to analysis. Um, aside from the waiting issue, you know, the subconscious mind loves puns. It loves double meanings. Um, and so, you know, it's good to be alert to those uh, when you're reviewing a session. Um, and it also pays to know your, you know, Lexi, you said you work, you know, with a small number of viewers and, um, 
I'd be curious in your opinion on this, but I find that it really pays to get to know the viewers and their idiosyncrasies as, as viewers. Um, and also just something about them that helps you, you know, oftentimes a viewer will produce a stray cat or an AOL that someone who doesn't know the viewer wouldn't understand the significance of. Uh, an example is, uh, I'm thinking of one of the viewers had a, a stray cat uh, of the word Angelo. He had the name Angelo. Uh, well, this is somebody I've worked with for 10 years. I happen to know Angelo is his son. Um, and that particular target actually happened to involve a parent-child relationship. And that was very important to that target. I don't know how uh, a machine would have picked that up. Um, you know, maybe someday AI will know everything. But for now, there's a lot of just, you know, human uh, connections and human interaction. Um, the other thing that I really, I really love when I'm doing analysis, but it's also very challenging to organize, is the visual information. Uh, you know, viewers provide lots and lots of sketches. And, you know, not every sketch has every element labeled. You know, there's a lot of information in those sketches that doesn't have accompanying words with it. But when you, you know, just like you saw with the cuisine art, you know, putting all those sketches from the viewers together, there's a clear pattern, um, whether they had any words attached to it or not. So um, I think it's, you know, it's great if, if computers get to the point where they can provide useful analysis, but right now it feels like humans, you know, we're not gonna be out of a job just yet. Yeah, Gail, as you say, um... You have to know the viewers. It's and 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 at Iris, uh, the viewers I work with are my best friends. You know, so and we we talk to each other every day, uh, and it's been for years and years and years. And um, yeah, um, there was a question, and we have this question very often at Iris: uh, How long do I have to train? To, to be part of your team, uh, I don't care at all. <laughs> Are you my friend? Do I know you? Uh, do I know your family, your children? Do I know your hobbies? Do I know, you know what you like, what you don't like? Uh, and then, okay, you can train. <laughs> it's, it's the opposite. It's uh, because it's exactly as you said, Gail. It's, um, because it's a very human thing, and um, and um, uh, something. Well, I, I would, yeah, okay, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I imagine the rapport that you have with your viewers uh, helps them do better work because they have trust in you to to provide things oh. to you that they know you're going to treat it the right way, that you're going to be running projects with integrity. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps viewers do their best work too. So I think it, it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, something I'd like to add, and then I will unfortunately have to, to quit. Um, we work, mainly we work, um, uh, the viewers don't work at home by themselves. The, uh, it, the sessions are monitored. Uh, that's explained what I said earlier when we don't do retasking uh, because we uh, the sessions are monitored so we the monitor can retask the viewer while the session is going on and uh, 10 years ago we started to uh, to work like this because 
it goes faster. It, and, and in an hour time, you know, you can do almost everything you want to do. And when you have to go fast and, you know, time is money, unfortunately. So it, it helps a great deal. And the, the sessions are recorded. And at the end of the session, the, the audio track or the video track goes to the, to the analyst. And then it, uh, the transcript uh, part <laughs> starts. So that's how we work. Uh, I'd like to thank you all. Uh, thank you, Daz. I really appreciate this uh, moment we, with all you guys. Thank you, Gail. It was a pleasure. Oh, this and, was great, Alexis. Thank you. Yeah, um, thanks, Alexi, for sharing all the information with us. I, I know you've got to get on your way now. It's, it's a late hour for you, as it is for me here. Okay, thank you. And uh, thank you very much. Talk to you guys soon. And I'd like to say hi to Lynn because it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Bye bye. bye. Yeah, thanks, Alexi. Um, thank you, Gail, bye, as well. Um, I think we'll end this one here because it seems a, a natural time to do it. At, you know, two and a half hours. Uh, next week we're going to have Marty Rosenblatt talk about ARV, and possibly in the next two weeks, sometime as well, if I can arrange it, we should have uh, Joe McMahon Eagle coming along for a few hours as well to give us a chat. So that'd be one to, not to miss as well. So thanks, everyone, for all the great questions and for returning up. Uh, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Take care. And deal. See you guys. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.